The following was recorded at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. A one-eyed Marlboro man in the desert today, Tuesday, January 22nd, from Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. The alleged mastermind of the hostage-taking in Algeria is a one-eyed militant nicknamed Mr. Marlboro. We'll hear about his background. He cut his teeth in terrorism when he was 19 or 20 years old. Also, it's election night in Israel, and one thing's for sure. The whole country in the last 35 years or so has shifted way to the right. We'll have the latest from our correspondent in Tel Aviv, plus the appeal of a bilingual iPad comic book called Dim Sum Warriors. It's like you're doing two things at once, but you don't even know. Learning language and reading. That's all ahead after the news. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Israelis voted for a new parliament today. The official results haven't been announced yet, but exit polls show what could be a surprising turn of events for current Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He likely keeps his job and his spot atop a hawkish right-wing coalition, but with a much smaller mandate than earlier polls had predicted. Netanyahu has come under international pressure for his handling of settlements and stalled negotiations with the Palestinians, and some suggested that a turn to the right would have alienated many of Israel's backers. The world's Matthew Bell is in Tel Aviv. So, Matthew, what have the exit polls shown? Any surprises? Yeah, a couple of big surprises, Marco. Um, The first one is that the party put together by Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, between his Likud party and another right-wing party, did not get nearly the support that many experts thought it would. They thought that it would get about 65 out of the total number of of mandates, and it, uh, sorry, to get get about uh, in the high 30s, and it got in 31. Um, The other big surprise is uh, someone named Yair Lapid, who came in second, apparently, according to the, these exit polls, and these are based on the, the three Israeli TV channels. Uh, Lapid is a former television journalist himself. Um, people thought he would do well, but didn't think that he would come in second place with 19 mandates. So the bumper sticker here is that Netanyahu's victory was nowhere as wide as polls had predicted. What does that actually mean? How does that translate when it comes to his ability to lead on his agenda? We should mention that uh, there's a lot of work to be done. These are the the first indications of of what kind of of voting happened today. They're not the official results. Those will come uh, probably early in the morning. Putting together a governing coalition is is the big job ahead. What it probably means is that if Netanyahu didn't get the kind of mandate many people expected, that he won't be able to put together a solid right-wing coalition, the kind of coalition that would be most worrisome for Washington. It appears that at this point, he's going to have to bring in at least one of the the center or center-left parties and have a different kind of governing coalition. Do you think that's going to mean he's going to have to compromise? 
Exactly. I think some people in Washington are breathing a, a slight sigh of, of relief at this point. You know, again, there's a, there's a lot to be done. There, there are a lot of parties here at play, and, uh, and we don't know exactly how things are going to work out. It could take days. It could take uh, weeks, frankly. Um, but it looks like the sort of, for the Obama administration, the, the kind of scary scenario of having a, a right-wing coalition that would be so opposed to long-standing U.S. policies is less likely to happen. Well, let's pursue that a little bit more, Matthew. I mean, much is made about the frosty relationship between Netanyahu and President Obama, who was, of course, re-inaugurated yesterday. How might today's uh, parliamentary election in Israel affect that relationship now? For, for someone like Benjamin Netanyahu, if he does bring in uh, a coalition of, of different kinds of parties, and what's interesting is to think about Yair Lapid, who's a, a new, relatively unknown political personality in Israel, uh, getting into a coalition with an, another rising star in Israeli politics, and that is Naftali Bennett, who there's been a lot of reporting on. Uh, his party, the Jewish Home Party, is further to the right uh, to Likud. So if you think about those two different types of characters, different types of parties being in a governing coalition, it could make ruling just all the more precarious for someone like Benjamin Netanyahu. I should add that most people think that he still, Netanyahu, will be the prime minister, but if he doesn't have that sort of ideological solid backing, um, it could make dealing with Washington very different. Well, we'll leave it there with that update on the Israeli parliamentary election from the world's Matthew Bell in Tel Aviv. Matthew is blogging at theworld.org on some of the complexities of the election, and be sure to follow him on Twitter for the latest. He's at Matthew J. Bell. Even if Netanyahu's coalition is weakened, as the exit polls suggest, that's unlikely to make the country's neighbors feel any more at ease with the direction Israel's headed. Rami Khoury directs the Isam Faris Institute at the American University of Beirut. We asked him, in light of the vote in Israel, what neighbors in the region are expecting. Well, more of the same and probably a lot worse. Uh, we've had uh, right-wing religious uh, parties, right-wing nationalist extremist parties, and the, some anti-Arab racist parties. In some combination of the ruling uh, coalition in Israel for many, many years, on and off going back about uh, 30, 35 years. So this is nothing new. Uh, what is new is there's such a big majority of people on the right in Israel that the whole country in the last 35 years or so has shifted way to the right. When you say more of the same, what does that mean to you when it comes to the prospects of that ever-elusive two-state solution? I think more of the same basically means that we're going to get more settlements being built. There's going to be more lands uh, possibly annexed into Israel. You're going to get more walls being built uh, on the Golan and other places. And there'll be more uh, stringent measures taken against the Arab citizens of Israel or the uh, uh, Arabs who are living under Israeli occupation. Are you saying that the two-state solution is dead? I think the two-state solution probably has died. Uh, people will still try to negotiate some kind of settlement based on two states, but they've been trying to do that for 20 years, since uh, 1993. And it just isn't moving, and it's not getting anywhere. Uh, so I think, essentially, it's dead. The problem is there's no other really... A clear, viable, or realistic alternative uh, out there on the horizon. And that's why I think people are concerned that the continued uh, extremist policies of the Israeli government, um, which most of the world kind of uh, puts up with and doesn't seem to 
to do much about, uh, these policies will probably lead to much more uh, violent days ahead and uh, raises the specter also of, of the Israelis possibly doing something with Iran, which would uh, bring in uh, uh, some kind of regional conflagration. So it's, it's pretty rough stuff and very serious and very scary. Well, before we get to kind of all these worst-case scenarios, I mean, you, you do sound pessimistic, but I'm just wondering what role Washington could play at this point, if any. Well, based on its previous behavior over the last 30, 40 years, there's no role that Washington can play uh, because uh, it doesn't seem to be a really honest, impartial uh, interlocutor or mediator. Um, The uh, attempts by Americans in the last 30 years or so to mediate have not worked because they've come down closer to the Israeli side than being a truly impartial mediator. The last successful one was... Jimmy Carter with the first Camp David. Rami, you're in Beirut. Is your pessimism about what these parliamentary elections in Israel may spell, is that shared throughout other areas in the region? Oh, yes, it's very widely shared. I mean, nobody's even paying any attention to these elections in the Arab world of any, to any significant degree. You know, we've, we've lived with this process, whether it's American elections or Israeli elections, uh, really since the 1970s when people started thinking, well, maybe there'll be a political change, a new American president, new Israeli government. Uh, but the reality in, in both worlds, in Washington and in Tel Aviv, has been very clear that um, there are certain set policies that the Israelis are pursuing. The American government has been pretty consistent. So nobody bothers really anymore in the Arab world to uh, analyze what's going on inside Israel or inside Washington. And this is really worrying uh, because what it means is people are going to possibly look uh, at other uh, options. And one of the other options we've witnessed in the last 30 years is the rise of Hezbollah and the rise of Hamas, closer ties to the Iranians. And this only creates greater tensions, which uh, portends, you know, bad days ahead, potentially. Rami Khoury directs the Isam Faraz Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs at the American University of Beirut. Rami, thanks. Always good to speak with you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Speedy Internet access is something many of us take for granted. Not so in Cuba. The island's communist government restricts access. Most Cubans don't have any. And those who do are mostly connecting through very slow satellite connections. An underwater fiber optic cable connecting Cuba and Venezuela was supposed to change that. It was laid down years ago, but Cubans had yet to see any benefits from it. Recently, though, a company that monitors Internet usage noticed that access speeds improved slightly in Cuba. That could be because Cuban authorities have finally activated the cable. Doug Midori is a researcher with the Internet monitoring firm Renesis. We watched this for, you know, going back six years, things have kind of been the same there for uh, Internet service in, in Cuba. So this is it's a significant development that they are now trying to provide better service to, to Cuba. And, um, you know, it came on the same day that they announced the elimination of exit visas. So maybe there's a trend of a greater openness uh, from Cuba. So the cable was there. Are you saying that uh, suddenly somebody in the government of Cuba or somewhere just threw a switch and made it operational? Yeah, I, I can't know who it was who activated it. All we can see is the end effect. The traffic now is going through uh, Telefonica at a higher speed, a speed that's not consistent with uh, with satellite. Telefonica is a Spanish company, correct? They are a very large global telecommunications firm. Uh, they're based out of Spain, but they are very large in Latin America. They provide international internet service to 
providers in Venezuela. They own the state telecom of uh, Colombia. So they have a very large presence in Latin America. So it's it's no surprise to see them show up as an international internet provider for Cuba. Mm. Doug, you track this stuff on a regular basis. When you say, we, we saw this, what are you looking at? How do you actually follow the speed of internet access in Cuba? We, we actually follow this for every country on Earth. We follow paths in and out of the country, uh, who are the providers that provide service there. So we are, uh, we are monitoring things all around the world. Uh, you may not know the company's name, but uh, it was us who uh, noticed Egypt go offline in January 2011. Wow. You know, when Syria goes offline, we are the ones that notice that because we have the entire world instrumented the Internet of how what Internet service providers are connected to which ones and how how they perform over time. So we're, we're, we got our eye on a lot of things. And uh, I just happen to know the situation in Cuba is kind of interesting. And when I saw Telefonica show up as a provider, uh, that piqued my interest. I knew something was new. Now, I was in Havana a few years ago, and boy, that dial-up access just was so slow, and everybody said it hadn't changed much. Does this mean now that the average Cuban does have access to this new high-speed service? I don't, I don't know that that's true. Uh, I think that you know, our, our measurements are mostly to the, the state telecoms infrastructure itself. And so the issue of getting uh, widespread access to the people of, of Cuba is, a, I think, a, a, a different matter. Um, at least there's the potential that if, if they did get uh, widespread access, that service uh, would be better than what they've had in the past. It's not something someone in the U.S. would, uh, not the kind of service that we're used to in the U.S. It's still, even with the improvement this morning, it's still, uh, it's still pretty slow. Well, we'll say Cuba has less slow internet access. <laughs> yes. Doug Midori with Renesis, an internet measurement company. Thanks for your time. No problem. Thank you. Still ahead, the one part of the world where tuna may still be safe on PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. It's still January, so technically it's not too late to get moving on a New Year's resolution. Maybe you made a promise to try to learn a new language. Well, if that's the case, here's something that might help. It's an app that helps you learn Chinese, or learn English for that matter. It's a bilingual app. It's also a comic book. Here's The World's Patrick Cox. So the other day, I was in Chinatown in New York City, eating dim sum with wife and husband Yan Yan Wu and Colin Go. They're originally from Singapore, though New York is their home now. It's a good thing I know you well. And for reasons that'll become clear, well, I couldn't stop myself imagining that these little Chinese snacks that we were eating, these dumplings and steam buns, I couldn't help imagining they were alive like this. The dim sum warriors. Their bravery and skill have inspired millions worldwide, while the mere mention of their names causes enemies to quiver like tofu. That might be actually the starting point of dim sum warriors. It was like, what if these dumplings could talk? These walking, talking, fighting food items, a go and woo's baby. Well, aside from their real baby, who's now three. In fact, she's one of the reasons they came up with this idea for a bilingual comic book. We felt, especially because we were bringing up our daughter in America, we wanted something that would represent her mixed-up cultural heritage, I suppose. We lost, lost, lost. 
That's her, Kai Yen Go, playing around with the action-packed dim sum warrior's iPad app, with a bit of help from her mom. You can also go here, you know. You see, go here. When you press a little Chinese icon, the language switches from English. Excuse me, sir, but can I interest you in Master Phoenix Claw's handy dandy handy wipes? To Chinese. This is what an app can do that a traditional comic book cannot. If you want to hear the audio, you tap a word balloon. Tarot ball. On time and on message as usual. And if you hold your finger on the balloon, you get a translation, script and audio. I read that, I get it. I can touch it, I now I hear the text and I can see this again, and, and so I can keep revisiting it. This is Nick Susanis. He teaches a course at Columbia on using comics in classrooms. And he says the genius of Dim Sum Warriors is that it makes great use of relatively new behavior patterns. You know, if you read the New York Times on the web and you want to know what that word means, you click on it. You want to know how it sounds, you click on it. And, and so here's a comic that you can see the action, you know what the characters are doing. You see the word, now you can associate that word with what the character's action is. Now you can hear what, you know, that it's just all sort of synergistically holds together. And kids seem to like it. Third grade Finn Myers does. Finn's read it seven times. (laughs) At least. At least. Finn has been learning Chinese with the help of teacher Kyla Huang and the Dim Sum Warriors app. It's like you're doing two things at once, but you don't even know. And what are the two things that you're doing at once? learning language and reading. Now that's something of a dream for language teachers, distracting students with a strong narrative so they want to read on. Of course, it may not work on all kids, but Kyla Huang says, consider this. A lot of teachers, like, not only are they instructors in the classrooms, they're also authors. They have to write their own teaching materials because there isn't much available here. On top of that, iPads and other tablets are a big hit in many schools partly because kids are so drawn to interactivity. Yen Yen Wu tried out Dim Sum Warriors on some other third graders. She says they liked the idea of Chinese food items talking to each other, but something was missing. And they all said, what about, what about scallion pancake? When are you going to include scallion pancake? When are you going to include the spring roll? And, you know, that was, that was their reaction. And they also said that teachers should have them read it just before lunch because it's going to make them very hungry. It's true, you do get hungry. But you also want to read on to learn how... Crown Prince Roast Pork Bao? ...fares in the face of enemies, like... Colonel Quickie Noodle! Wu and Go describe the evil colonel as a mixture of Robert Downey Jr. and a mutant pot of instant ramen. Oh, he's so awesome! That's the view, at least, of the flabby-thinking... Lady Mango Pudding! Now, talking food is nothing new in Asian comics and cartoons. The Japanese have been doing it for years. But with its breadth of characters, Dim Sum Warriors takes it a few steps further. Co-creator Colin Goh's personal favorite is... The rather ostentatiously named Master Phoenix Claw, who is actually a chicken foot. But that's actually how uh, chicken feet are described in Dim Sum menus as Phoenix Claws. I always envisioned him as sort of a, a used car salesman. He's always trying to pull a fast one on anyone. There's the blend again of Chinese and American culture. Who could be more American than a car salesman? What could be more Chinese than a menu item with an over-the-top name? Put them together and you've got something new. A lot of the comics in the past have portrayed 
Asians in this kind of stereotypical way, like you're either dragon lady or you're the you're the mysterious Zen master or something like that. And for us, we really wanted our child to grow up being confident of her own culture and to see all these characters as being part of the universe. And so there's American-style teenage introspection, but also kung fu fights, that is, kung fu fights enacted by dumplings. And just the idea of a comic book, that's American, not Chinese. Most Asian comic books are Japanese, manga. You can now read Dim Sum Warriors the old-fashioned way. The first volume has just come out in book form. But for the full effect, you need to experience it as originally conceived on an iPad. To grasp the difference, Colin Goh casts his mind back to when he was a teenager, obsessed with Japanese pop culture. He taught himself the language in a painstaking way. By sitting there with manga and three dictionaries and trying to figure out what they were saying. And I was thinking, the iPad enabled us to make the comic into what I would have wanted back when I was 15 years old. Another big advantage is that apps debut in scores of countries, less of a distribution problem than books. So far, though, there are fewer Chinese using Dim Sum Warriors to learn English than the other way around. Wu and Go hope to change that with a visit to China later this year. They even have the idea of turning their fantasy into a stage musical, another American genre making inroads in China. And that translates as... Holy hot sauce! Pour it on. For The World, I'm Patrick Cox. And we have lots more from Patrick's interviews with the creators of Dim Sum Warriors in our language podcast, The World in Words. We also have an eye-popping slideshow and video. That's all at theworld.org. better be fluent now. News headlines are coming up next. This is PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, a distinctive European cheese. It's something that more or less everyone will have on their morning sandwich. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's quite unusual for a cheese in that it tastes more like toffee mm. uh, the, than a cheese. It's quite, it's quite sweet. We'll find out where it's from and how it shut down a highway. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Another surprise twist to the hostage drama at that natural gas plant in Algeria. Government forces today searched the Sahara Desert for five foreign workers who appear to have vanished during the ordeal. The five may have escaped and gotten lost. 37 hostages, including three Americans, were killed between the time that Islamic militants attacked the gas facility and the end of a four-day battle between the militants and the Algerian military. 29 militants were also killed. Three were captured. The alleged mastermind of the attack is still at large, though. He's a one-eyed Algerian militant named Mokhtar Belmokhtar. Some know him as Mr. Marlboro, a nickname that refers to his cigarette smuggling operations in the desert. French intelligence officials reportedly refer to him as the uncatchable. But the hostage taking at the gas plant in southern Algeria has now trained a bright spotlight on Belmokhtar. Jeff Porter is a founder and director of North Africa Risk Consulting. He's lived and worked in the region over the last two decades. And he calls Mokhtar Belmokhtar an enigmatic character. He cut his teeth in terrorism when he was 19 or 20 years old. Uh, He left Algeria, where he was born, to join the Mujahideen fighting against the Soviet occupation in Afghanistan. He returned to Algeria, joined the Islamist insurgency that was underway there. He subsequently relocated to the Sahara at that time. So he's been established in the Sahara since 2002, so for a little more than a decade now. Um, His commitment to jihadi terrorism seemed to dissipate over his time in the Sahara. He became increasingly criminally minded, and there were serious questions about whether he was a genuine jihadi or he was simply a mafioso, mm. a, a leader of an organized crime gang that was involved in kidnap for ransom, in cigarette smuggling, in human trafficking, in drug running, and any number of, of criminal enterprises that weren't necessarily jihadi-motivated terrorist activities. Now, I think some of our listeners will hear your description of Belmokhtar going to Afghanistan for fighting experience, becomes a jihadi, returns home. There are some similarities with Osama bin Laden. Do you see anything beyond uh, those kind of broad strokes that draw similarities for you? That's a good question. You know, bin Laden had a very clear objective of establishing a global jihadi network. It's not clear whether Belmokhtar has those same ambitions. One potential similarity may be that Belmokhtar may have regional ambitions in the sense that he wants to become the dominant jihadi in North Africa, the Sahel, and the Sahara. Um, The group that participated in the raid at the Algerian gas facility was a multinational group. It included Tunisians, Algerians, Libyans, Mauritanians, Malians, Nigerians, And what we're hearing is also possibly a Canadian. Does he travel freely between Algeria and Mali? And what do people in that kind of part of the world think of him? I don't think he has the ability to cross into Algerian territory. Bilmukhtar has been on Algeria's radar for the better part of a decade. What do people think of him? It varies. Um, You know, the Algerian government thinks he's a criminal and a terrorist and should probably be killed. The local population probably has you know, a, a less one-sided view of who Bil Mukhtar is. Over the course of his tenure in the Sahara, he has created economic opportunities for the local populations, either through com- criminal activities like uh, cigarette smuggling or drug running or kidnap for ransom. 
we do know in some instances that individuals have been kidnapped by entrepreneurial terrorists. People see an opportunity to kidnap an expatriate in the Sahel, and then they sell that victim to Bil Mukhtar. And then he ransoms the victim for a substantial markup. Um, you, you mentioned earlier the, the break uh, that Bel Mokhtar had with uh, al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, or AQIM. Um, it started his own organization last fall called the Signed in Blood Battalion. What do you think is significant about that break with AQIM? So when AQIM came into emergence in 2006, 2007, there was still this desire to be affiliated with al-Qaeda core. Following the death of bin Laden, uh, following the re- the assumption of leadership in Al-Qaeda Corps by Zawahiri, you know, Al-Qaeda didn't have much to offer its affiliates. Um, it didn't have the financial resources. In fact, the relationship had been reversed, where the affiliates were supposed to pony up to Al-Qaeda Corps. Mm. They were supposed to contribute to the lead organization. And so there were real questions about you know, what the affiliates were getting out of their relationship with Al-Qaeda. Um, and I think Bil Mukhtar felt as if AQIM in Algeria was a dead-end organization. And what he wanted to demonstrate was that AQIM is not the lead jihadi organization in the Sahara anymore. It's his organization. So where does it put uh, Belmokhtar today in terms of what his goals are? I mean, what is he trying to achieve with these kidnappings and these smuggling networks and all these millions that are coming in? Is he a jihadist? I don't know. Um, we simply don't know what Belmokhtar wants. Does he want to restore his credibility as a bona fide jihadi? Does he want to start to you know, challenge this perception that he is fundamentally a non-ideological, financially motivated criminal? Uh, or is he simply now going to return to his criminal activities except with the advantage of having carried out a spectacular terrorist attack that serves as a fantastic recruiting tool? We just don't know. Jeff Porter, founder and director of North Africa Risk Consulting, telling us about Mokhtar Bel Mokhtar, the Algerian militant who has claimed responsibility for the attack at the BP plant in southern Algeria. Jeff, thank you very much for your time and thoughts. No, it's absolutely my pleasure. Whatever Bel Mokhtar's true motives, he claims to have launched the raid in Algeria as retaliation for the French intervention in neighboring Mali. A quick note now on the latest news from Mali. Today, U.S. forces got involved in Mali as well in a support role. The Pentagon says the U.S. Air Force helped transport a French mechanized infantry unit into the Malian capital, Bamako. There are no plans for U.S. troops on the ground. France is taking the lead in this battle in Mali. They've got over 2,000 troops there helping to battle Islamist militants who have threatened to take control of the former French colony. Yesterday, French and Malian government troops succeeded in pushing back the Islamist insurgents. Those troops entered the central cities of Jabali and Duenza. And Malian officials say the next step is to move on to the source of the insurgency, the historic cities of Gao and Timbuktu. Mali watchers worry that it may be easy to occupy these towns, but holding on to them could be another challenge as the militants disperse among the civilian population. If you're a fan of tuna, and it seems that many Americans are, here are a couple of jaw-dropping news items for you. Scientists estimated this month that the population of Pacific bluefin tuna has dropped by 96%. In recent decades. Meanwhile, a single Pacific bluefin fetched a record price this month in Tokyo, nearly $1.8 million for one fish. 
The collapse in stocks and the record price for Pacific Bluefin are extreme examples, but tuna around the world are in big trouble. In fact, there's just one part of the world where stocks are relatively healthy, and that's the Southern Pacific Ocean. And as Shannon Service reports from Palau, a group of Pacific Island states are struggling to keep them that way. All right. This string actually holds the spear. And all I need to do is just pull it, snaps in the water. Matthew Rivera has been spearfishing for tuna in Palau's clear blue waters most of his 40 or so years. It's a big part of life here in this tiny southern Pacific archipelago, 600 miles east of the Philippines. Because like us here in Palau, we can't eat meat every day. We can't eat chicken every day. We have to eat fish. It's what we grew up with. Palauans are lucky. This part of the Pacific is home to the world's last healthy tuna populations. But in recent years, the global demand for tuna has exploded. So now these waters are flooded with foreign tuna boats. Some of the fishing here is legal, but not all of it. And as a marine policeman here, Rivera works to protect Palau's nearly quarter million square miles of ocean from illegal fishing. But there's a problem. The country only has one patrol boat. When it comes to enforcement, that's the big hole in the bucket here, you know. That's Palau's president, Thomas Romengasau Jr. Every time our one patrol boat goes to our southwest islands, it's almost a, a given thing that they're going to catch some poachers out there every single time. That's one reason Palau recently banded together with seven of its South Pacific neighbors to try to protect their tuna populations better. They even worked with regional authorities to largely ban big tuna operations from the international waters between their countries. It's an unprecedented arrangement, but enforcement is still a constant battle. So they've called on outsiders for help, including organizations like Greenpeace. Do you want to go high? Yeah, just stay here for now, just under the edge of the cloud. In international waters about 500 miles offshore, a Greenpeace helicopter carrying a Palawan marine officer and Greenpeace activists hovers near three tuna boats. The passengers suspect two of the boats may be moving tuna onto the third for transfer to market. Yeah, that looks like a transshipment that's either ending or about to start. Transshipping at sea obscures the tuna's origin, making it impossible to track where the fish was caught. Conservationists call it tuna laundering. There's a bucket of fish going across now. Under the deck of this one. See, here comes another one swinging across. Yeah, the train's shipping right yep. now. Yep. See, caught in the act. Look at it. A few hours later, Greenpeace activists board the receiving vessel, a Cambodian-flagged refrigerator ship. I join them as they descend a frosty ladder into the ship's dark, icy belly. I'm so glad I wore my linen pants to literally crawl my way through frozen... Skipjack tuna, just tons of tuna. We are in the hold of the Heng Sing One, a carrier vessel. Farah Obaidala is the leader of Greenpeace's expedition. And we're sitting in and amongst tens of thousands of kilos of tuna. The captain of this vessel has actually admitted uh, that he doesn't have a license on board to do this activity out here. He claims that the company back home does. It's impossible to know whether the fish were caught legally, but the transfer was illegal. Moving fish at sea is a common practice, but authorities here require that the boats offload only in port so they can track the tuna. 
And as a Cambodian-flagged vessel, the Hengxing has no right to work here at all. But the Palawan officer riding with Greenpeace can't bust the ship because it's in international waters. All he can do is report the incident to the regional fisheries authority. A few days later, the monitors came across another of the boats that took part in the illegal transshipment. Palawan Marine Officer Earl Benhart says it seems pretty clear the boat was up to no good. This is uh, first time that I have uh, board this uh, kind of vessels with uh, no names and no identification. The Philippines registered boat was transiting Palau with no vessel name, no call sign, and no logbook. But again, Officer Benhart could only report the ship. The crew was frustrated, but not surprised. Jurisdictions on the ocean are notoriously complicated. So even boats that are caught red-handed go free, because the boarding nation lacks the authority to enforce international law. Basically what this shows is you need an interpol for the oceans. Farah Obaidala of Greenpeace. Governments should be able to enforce international law on vessels that aren't necessarily registered to their country, because otherwise this is what happens. Short of that, host countries like Palau will have to depend on the willingness of bigger fishing countries like the Philippines, Taiwan, and the United States to make their boats play by the rules. After the incident with the undocumented Philippine tuna boat, its home country launched an investigation into its activities. And the Philippines' top fisheries official, Assis Perez, says his country doesn't sanction illegal fishing anywhere. There's no debate that there's a problem. We may not be able to prevent, but we will never, never tolerate an illegal action committed by our citizens in wherever countries they are. Perez says the Philippines is trying to step up enforcement and plans to add more boats to monitor their high seas fishing fleet. But self-policing has generally failed to prevent overfishing, on the high seas or elsewhere. And with tuna prices on the rise and populations crashing elsewhere, the pressure on Palau and her neighbors is only likely to increase. President Remengasau says the effects are already noticeable. We're leaving the depletion of stocks of fish, where we used to fish very close to shore, now we have to go miles away. And this is only the window of what eventually will be affecting everybody. For The World, I'm Shannon Service, Palau. Shannon's report was made possible with help from the Food and Environment Reporting Network. We have some great pictures and an infographic on the fight to save tuna in the Southern Pacific at theworld.org. Now for today's GeoQuiz, think about cheese. There are hundreds of cheeses around the world. Each, whether it's sard, soft, stinky, or full of holes, is associated with its place of origin. Camembert, for example, was first made in Camembert in northern France. Paneer, a fresh cheese that comes from the Indian subcontinent. And feta, a brined curd cheese traditionally made in Greece. So what about Brunost? It's a brown, slightly sweet, caramel-tasting cheese, and it's made in several countries, but mostly it comes from one Scandinavian nation, and that's the one we want you to name. We'll have the answer and sample some Brunost in just a bit. is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Our GeoQuiz has us searching for the origin of a cheese known as Brunost. Journalist Lars Bavanger happens to have some in his fridge, so uh, let's ask him. Lars, where does Brunost come from? 
Well, it's a Norwegian, very Norwegian cheese, and I'm very familiar with it having been born and bred in Norway. It's something that more or less everyone will have on their morning sandwich, and it's 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 quite unusual for a cheese in that it tastes more like toffee mm. than a cheese. It's quite it's quite sweet. I've got some here actually. I'm going to tell you what. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite it's it's quite. We'll live vicariously. I'm having a bite now from one I've got in my fridge. It's it's very sweet. It's usually very nice on fresh bread with a bit of butter. Mm. But it's an acquired taste, I think. I mean, I, I've got a bit of it at home. I don't eat a lot of it. And when I toast it, it melts faster than most cheeses and almost looks like it could keep on melting. And today, I learned something new about Brunos. It does cook. In fact, it burns like tar. And that fact, Lars, is a source of some pretty major havoc in Norway. Tell us what's going on. That's right. It was uh, last week on Thursday that a uh, truckload of brown cheese, 27 tonnes of the stuff to be precise, caught fire. Uh, But not only did it catch fire, it caught fire inside a tunnel in the north of Norway. Now, it kept burning for more than five days. It only stopped just yesterday on Monday local time. And fire crew have not been able to actually access the tunnel yet because of all the poisonous gases. So this is stuff that really, really burns. I I had no idea. Of course, I'd never tried to set fire to it myself, Mm -hmm. but I do know that it melts quite quickly. And so does it keep on burning because of the sugar content in it? Is that the explanation? Well, there's sugar content and there's quite a high fat content as well. Uh, I saw some footage of it online and it was a a really, really ferocious uh, burning fire inside this this tunnel. And I think that took uh, everyone by surprise, including the the fire crew that came to try to put it out. They simply couldn't uh, and, and they just had to wait for it to burn out by itself. Has this ever happened before? Have you ever heard of Brunost just burning out of control like this? No, this is something I've never heard of. I've heard of tunnel fires in Norway before, and every time it happens, it's very uh, tragic, of course, if people uh, get hurt or die. In this instance, luckily, no one was injured, but it's a major inconvenience because Norway is, is covered with fjords, and this area where this brown cheese fire happened, it's crisscrossed by fjords, and if you can't use the tunnel well, you're facing a at least a two-hour detour along the fjord arms. So for anyone who, who, who lives in the area, it's it's not only a, a funny story about burning cheese, it, it's uh, not particularly practical. Yeah. What's it like up there this time of year? Where, where did this uh, truck catch fire? Well, it's uh, in a fjord called the uh, Turi Fjord, and it's near the uh, very picturesque islands of Lofoten. Beautiful in the summer. This time of year... Very dark, of course, it's inside the Arctic Circle, so it will be dark for most of the day. Uh, certainly when this fire happened, uh, it was very dark and that uh, hampered the, the rescue operation. But uh, it is a very beautiful part of the world. It's a nice place to travel around, but of course, if you live there, you want to get from A to B as fast as, as possible, like, like anywhere in the world. And without this tunnel, well, that's a major problem. Norwegian journalist Lars Bavanger, thank you with the uh, story and with the answer to our geo-quiz today, Norway. Much obliged. You're welcome. Finally, Europe today is celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Élysée Treaty. The treaty officially reconciled France and Germany two decades after the end of the Second World War. 
The rapprochement was a work of two men, Charles de Gaulle in France and Conrad Adenauer in West Germany. They realized that treaties were not enough to patch things up between two nations that had been at war for so long. So they created a number of institutions to bring French and German folks together. Pierre Aski is co-founder of the French news and political analysis website, Rue Quatre-Vingt-Neuf. He says the Franco-German Office for Youth may have had the most lasting impact. This organized hundreds of thousands of exchanges between schools, between cities, between a whole generation of youth on both sides to meet, to realize that they, they had the same age, they listened to the same music, and they, they liked the same things. And that was really part of this growing reconciliation between the two countries. Right. So that wasn't even 20 years after the end of the war, and France and Germany didn't become friends again overnight. Culture also played a role, aside from those treaties you mentioned, those institutions. One song in particular titled Göttingen, sung by the single name French singer Barbara. First of all, brief description of Barbara. Who was she? She was a, a Jewish-French young woman who was born in 1930. So that means she was a kid during the war, and she experienced the, the whole occupation by the German army and suffered with her family hiding and being threatened with denunciation to the Nazis all the time. So she became an increasingly known singer after the war in the Saint-Germain-des-Prés jazzy atmosphere. And that's when this uh, Franco-German reconciliation took place. Right. So in 1964, she goes to this small university town in Germany and writes a song called Göttingen. But she didn't even want to go to Germany, I understand. So how did she end up there and writing and singing a song that's still dear to many French and many Germans? What happened is that her agent signed for this concert in Göttingen and she was furious. She didn't want to go to Germany. She hated Germany out of her background. And her agent told her that she had no choice. He had signed. So she went and she loved it. She loved the reception she got from the German audience. And she stayed longer than expected because it was so warm. And at the end of her stay, she started writing this song, which she sung in French and later in German, and which really was very dear to the hearts of many people at that time. Well, let's hear some of the song, and then we can talk about what it says. C'est la mélancolie même à Göttingen, à Göttingen, quand ils ne savent rien nous dire, ils restent là nous sourire, mais nous les comprenons quand même, les enfants blonds de Göttingen. Et tant pis pour ceux qui s'étonnent et que les autres me pardonnent. Mais les enfants, ce sont les mêmes à Paris ou à Göttingen. Fiaraski, what is Barbara singing here? The, her main message is that there are young people in a German city like Göttingen who are exactly like the French youth. They dream of the same thing, they talk love of the same way, and they sing the same way. This sounds banal, but this was really a very strong and powerful message coming from someone who suffered under German occupation and frost, and at a time when the wounds of the war were still very much alive. Pierre Aski of Rue 89, Street 89, thank you so much. Thank you, bye-bye. Lorsque sonnerait l'alarme, s'il fallait reprendre les armes, mon cœur verserait une larme pour Göttingen, pour Göttingen. 
we have a video of French singer Barbara performing Göttingen in a recording studio. That's at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org by the Henry Luce Foundation for Increased Understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International